0: Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is a CBC podcast. Hi, it is Thursday, September tenth. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. Thank you so much for tuning in today. A tuning in—you don't tune into a podcast, do you? How old am I? I'm like I'm thirty three years old, and I think I just sometimes talk like I'm an old prospector from nineteen eighty eight. Thanks for getting on the wireless and listening to this uh, broadcast. Thank you for downloading or streaming or however you're listening to this today on the show. Viggo Mortensen, who you might know from Lord of the Rings and A History of Violence, and just one of the finest actor green book one of the finest actors of our time and he is directing his first film and he chose an interesting topic because uh, I'll let him tell you the story but essentially he was coming back from his mother's funeral he had all these thoughts about how we deal with family how we deal with family when sometimes you know you're at a you're at Christmas you're at Thanksgiving and you're someone in your family says something racist or homophobic or, or you know just generally awful how do you deal with that how do you turn the other cheek and more importantly why why would you turn the other cheek so what starts out as a conversation about the film Turns into a conversation about the limits of empathy and whether there are any and then uh, closes with him talking a little bit about what why he's an artist. And of the years I've been on this show, five years now, he gives one of the most – Succinct and beautiful descriptions of why to be an artist. So stick around for that. After that, Jean Smith, speaking of being an artist, is selling her portraits for 100 bucks online. They sell in under a minute every single time they go up on Facebook. What makes them so special? Well, you're about to find out. Emma Donahue talks about writing a novel about a pandemic where people aren't necessarily happy about wearing masks and publishing it two days before... The COVID nineteen pandemic, and then Charles Officer and Motion are here to talk about their new film uh, Achilles Escape, which is one of the finest Canadian films I'm seen, I've seen. And they're going to talk a little bit about telling black stories. They're going to tell a little bit about uh, generational trauma, and we're going to talk a little bit um, about, about the film, of course, and, and poetry and art. Um, but it's it's a really beautiful conversation about. Uh, film and the power of art and the power of opportunity in art. And Charles is going to talk about this, this initiative that was important to him about 20 years ago when he was a kid and how it's influenced the film he made today. So, big show today. Put your thinking cap on. Show starts now. Welcome to the show. It is Thursday Today is the very first day of the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, It's the biggest event on the calendar in Canadian entertainment in a lot of ways. And and they're, of course, doing things a little bit different this year because of COVID, a combination of online screenings, virtual red carpets, some drive-ins thrown in there, and even some normal screenings in actual theaters, like the before times. One of the movies I want to tell you about is this tough look at tense family dynamics. And I guess the best way I can summarize it is, let me ask you this. Do you have that one person in your family who always manages to say the wrong thing? When the conversation might veer towards territory like race or misogyny or politics, you start cringing well in advance of whatever they're about to say and you hope that certain kinds of conversations just don't come up at Thanksgiving dinner? In Vigo Mortensen's new movie Falling, it's the dad that's the issue. His character is, to say the very least, irritable homophobic, racist, misogynist, and Viggo plays his gay son who's trying to take care of him as he gets older. You could definitely describe Viggo Mortensen as one of the great actors of our time. He's been in more than 50 films, The Lord of the Rings movies, Eastern Promises, The Road, but this movie is the first one he's also directed, which means it's important to him. Falling premieres at TIFF on Friday, and Viggo joined me to talk about exactly why. Welcome to the show. Nice to see you.
2: Uh, Nice to see you, too.
1: Tell me a little bit about where this film came from. I heard it was a a flight.
2: Um, Yeah, well, it was first it was a story I wrote on a plane flight at night after um, my mother's funeral. She passed away in 2015, and uh, I was just writing down things I remembered about her and things I'd heard from people at the memorial service, you know, met some people that I'd never met who knew her, you know and heard some of the stories I'd heard from her and from other members of of our family but slightly different versions you know memory it, is tricky that way it it, it
1: is interesting hey you know when when a parent dies you hear another side of their story that that existed without you you know, know what i mean it's it's a it's a very interesting strange part of it you know
2: yeah it can be it can be quite revealing either because they didn't want to tell you the whole story or or because that's just how they remembered it. And that's, you know, obviously part of our movie story. And, you know, when, I've, when your mother dies, you a lot of things come to mind that you hadn't maybe thought of for a long time. And you tend to look at a lot of photographs that maybe you hadn't and so forth. And so I just wanted to record these in, in a notebook so I wouldn't forget. And then I started playing with it. I couldn't sleep on this plane flight. So I I ended up writing a short story of sorts, but it it started, the foundation was memories or, you know, a desire to, I suppose, explore my feelings for my mother and, and then my father as well and 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 you know what i've learned from them good and bad i suppose and and so i it started there but then i started making up this fictional family which is the family in falling
1: i mean it's, it's funny you mentioned that it's it started as a, a, a something you know you're thinking about your mom and your dad and it went on to something fictional because I, I'm not going to lie to you, it is hard not to think about it, you know, when you're watching it and you see, and I don't think this is given anything away, but you see at the end that it's dedicated to your, to your brothers and you yeah. tell, and you, you know, in, in reading about it, I knew that you had written it on the plane um, after your mother had passed and you see a son, you know, dealing with, um, you know, uh, an angry homophobic uh, racist uh, father or parent. It was, yeah, exactly. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. It was hard not to go, my God, how much of this, is Vigo's real life, you know?
2: Well, it doesn't really matter as long as the story feels real. um, It's not whether it's entirely fiction or, you know, 4% fiction. It doesn't really matter as long as it feels real uh, with any movie. But yeah, there are some... The reason I dedicated it to my brothers, Charles and Walter, is because, out of respect, because there are certain... Dynamics, I guess, between the mother and father, for example, especially in their younger incarnations, by Hannah Gross and Sverrier Gudnason, who plays Lance Henri- Henriksen's part. He play, yeah, he plays the the younger, the younger their, their flashback dynamic. version
1: of the older man. Yeah,
2: yeah, their dynamic is, um, you know, there's certain aspects of it that that would remind my brothers of the memories we three share. Uh, of our parents, so it was just out of respect you know but but otherwise it's it 's mostly not our family but there there are certain very personal moments in it that are that they would recognize yeah. You know?
1: Just to be clear, if you're just tuning in, the, the film we're talking about, uh, Falling, is the, the the older man, sort of the lead of the film, is this racist, homophobic, misogynist man. And he says you know, horrible things to his family and he doesn't even type them on message boards. He says them, you know, right, to you, you know, he, 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 you play his son who is gay. Um, it's, it, it raised the question of if, if you began to understand, because there's people like that in our world right now. Um, yeah. It made me wonder if you had empathy for somebody like that. Did you get a sense of what motivates someone like that, of the worldview of someone like that?
2: To me, one of the main, the most important things about the story is that it's about trying in some way. Some people try harder than others in the story to find a way to accept the other person uh, and forgive them, but also to accept yourself the way you are, and forgive yourself but accept, you know but mean, that's, you that's that 's hard that... but you but you i mean it is what it is, and you have to kind of make peace with it in some way, as you see in this story and it 's not ideal it 's not perfect, um, but there are ways that people can show you that they 're aware, where they haven 't before, where they actually see you um, it 's really hard to be open to that person, especially if they are hateful in their speech and their behavior repeatedly. It's hard to say, okay, I'm gonna give them one more chance or not. I'm just gonna always leave the door open, you know? I guess the question but, is why? Uh,
1: like the question is why would you, you know? I mean, the, 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 what, what was going through my head was while I was watching this film was that, you know, the idea that you have empathy well, for these people, you forgive why, people.
2: Why does, why does someone driving down the road, you know, see someone that's stuck in a ditch and either keep driving or stop and help, help them or see if they're okay.
1: Sure. But there's a difference between it's, that. It's, and a, it's
2: an option. It's a human thing, but there's, but there's, there's sure. And I,
1: ha- I, and I'm not, I'm not, I want to be clear. I'm not passing judgment on the film no, or, no, 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 or no. on, or on the characters, but it did make me think of like when you are gay and someone says uh, uh, something awful and homophobic to you, or if you are black and someone says something racist if to you, it, what, what, why would you? Like, why would you why would you take that upon yourself to investigate it and and to like, I think I was just thinking about the limits of empathy there, you know, and what it does to what it does to yourself.
2: They are. They are certainly stretched in this story. That's for sure. Um, Why would you? Well, it's optional. Like I say, you don't have to stop for that person that's stuck in the ditch. You don't have to. And it happens. Some people, let's say they have a parent who behaves abominably or they have a son or a daughter who behaves just horribly and they just finally have to throw up their hands and go, okay, you're on your own. We have no relationship. We may be blood, but that's it. And that happens all the time. And I'm not putting any negative judgment on that either, but I think there is merit to trying. And I think in the story, as hateful as Willis can be, there are moments that surprise you where he shows some kind of compassion or seems to respect, the dignity of of another person. And by that, I was just trying to show that nobody is one thing all the time. I I just don't think that's true. Uh, And there are moments, but you have to be patient and you have to be, uh, in a sense, as stubborn as that other person is about being intolerant, you have to be stubborn about being tolerant. If you want to have, that's the option. If you want to have any relationship, if you care about that person, especially if they're older, and they clearly need help, but they're unwilling to take it, or they show no gratitude uh, for a long time someday well, it's not really about being thanked it's about because you feel it's the right thing to do and you want to you know i mean it's complicated families are complicated um, parent child relationships are very complex you know
1: the the scene um and I don't think I'm giving anything away, but at one point that patience erodes you are patient yeah. with your Father for all the homophobic and, and awful and misogynist and bigoted things he says. And then towards the end of the film, you're not. And you you blow up in a pretty emotional scene. You're screaming at him about everything he's ever said. And you're going to be left alone and all these other things. How did you feel after that scene?
2: Uh, I was exhausted. I think the crew was too And I know Lance was, it was a very hard scene to do. And it was a scene that required, you know, on Lance's part, he was extremely just throughout this shoot, but he was very brave about going to some pretty dark places and emotional places, I thought. And he had a really rough, rough upbringing. I mean, his parents were tough. They were alcoholics. They were, you know, he basically grew up on the streets. They would go on a bender when he was like a, infant and they would just drop him off at the orphanage essentially or just like one, one i'll tell you one quick thing which will tell you a little bit what his childhood was like he was about five or something five or six and his mom was drunk one night and she comes up to him sort of well and he goes he shows him his birth certificate and goes here he puts puts in his hand so you always know who you are and then she turned him around and pushed him out the door middle of winter new york city and then, you know, he was out on the streets for a few days and came back when she was, you know, whatever, when he was able to come back. And so this was a constant with him, but he sort of, he he's not bitter about it. He can talk about these things. You know, as we were preparing the movie, he told me all kinds of stories like this. And I was like, holy shit, I can't believe that you're not an angry, bitter person. Uh, it was remarkable. Did that.
1: That, did that help you understand what we were talking about earlier, how someone can be so noxious Someone can be so frankly abusive to you and you can, you can come around.
2: Yeah, it did help me to some degree. And I think it also helped Lance, which was really important to access these feelings, you know, whereas if he'd been bitter and angry, he wouldn't have been able to or wanted want to, you know, go there. And so for this role, I mean, he's done almost 300 movies, 270 something, I think but he's never had a role like this, which asked him to go there in that way. And so he was, I know he was worried and scared and nervous about it. It also was a lot of text he had, a very intricate role with the onset of dementia going in and out of that and all his sort of angry feelings. So he, but he went there and he thought about his feelings about his own past, his childhood. And he was very, very brave. And so after that scene that you were referring to, it was grueling, but I mean, it was a it was also a relief because, in a sense, if that scene doesn't work, the movie can be good, but it can't be really good. You know what I mean? That scene has to be has to be strong and has to be kind of raw. I I,
1: I, I want to return to just kind of two things before we go, and one is, and I want to be clear that I I, I recognize and I respect that you you know, you, films aren't didactic. Your film is not meant to say anything, and your film's not going to tell anybody anything. However, I couldn't help but think about the experience of someone who perhaps might have their own racist or sexist or their own homophobic family and their own uncomfortable Thanksgiving dinner or their uncomfortable Christmas. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I, I wonder what you might say to them or what was on your mind about them when you were making this film, when you were telling this kind of story about those people.
2: It's extremely difficult to do, but simply to not respond to hatefulness with hatefulness, to violence, with violence, to uh, superficial pigeonholing, with superficial pigeonholing. I mean, it's it sounds simple, but it's very hard to do. I guess no matter how much you want to just jump on that person or smack them or whatever, just try to listen. You know, take a deep breath, think carefully about what you're going to say, even as you're getting heated and certain buttons are being pushed um i don't know it's R- just restraint is, where... restraint and take a deep breath before you respond it's very hard to do where does
1: that come tough. from in you like where did you learn that
2: um i'm not always good at it i can you know if i see an injustice whether it's personal or whether it's societal i i can get really angry and i can be very um vociferous about it <laughs> but i've but I do make a point of making sure I try to redress it. If I realize that I've gone too far or someone has not understood me or the context of what I'm saying is not understood, I try to make sure that that person realizes I've realized that. In other words, apologize when you've made a mistake or you've, you've done the wrong thing. Um, that's something I learned largely from my mother, I suppose, because um, my mother didn't have a problem Uh, communicating my dad you know sometimes did and and it was kind of his way or the highway he wasn't really like willis is in this story Mm -hmm. but but there were certain aspects a certain maybe it's from that generation you know that that grew up in the depression and world war ii and all that stuff i don't know but just different times different mm, masculine role models or nuclear family models parental Mm -hmm. Roles, all that, but he was he wasn't he wasn't uh, out of pride and just habit. Uh, He was not someone that that uh, had an easy time of apologizing for anything, you know. And there are a lot of people like that uh, that they they feel like it's it shows weakness to apologize, and you know, I mean, you can look at. I think a lot of people have related to falling because of that, because they see that in some cases, as a direct parallel to things in their own family dynamics, or even society at large, you know, you see the family and falling is maybe a microcosm of, of a polarized society. And how do you, how do you pull things together so that there's more of a working, somewhat unified, at least communicative society when things are really split, you know, and just like Just like bullies in a, within a family can take advantage of people who are weak or who can't stand up to them and create havoc and conflict and schisms, it happens in society at large too. We can see politicians clearly doing that in in any country where they take advantage of the possibility for a polarization and aggravate it you know people who who can be quite calculating about it who who like to play the role of pyromaniac you know fire starter and fireman it's like i'll I'll light a fire and then i'll say get out of my way and shut up i'm the only one that can take care of this and it's like you know that happens that happens in in falling as well i i find it
1: i find it interesting that you you describe it as not an opportunity for weakness bullies don't see an opportunity for weakness but they see an opportunity for polarization they see an opportunity to to divide you know
2: yeah, because that keeps that allows them to, in their minds, to to have control. You know, if you keep everybody off balance and offend everyone, then they're not not going to get too close to you. But it's also, where does that come from? I mean, I think any kind of bullying or any kind of violence or hateful speech or action comes from fear. I think uh, at the bottom of it is is a, some kind of insecurity. You know, so you need to lash out. Just in case someone is thinking about saying anything disparaging about you, just if, in case someone gives you a disapproving look or you think that's what that is, the best the best policy is attack. You know, I mean, it's preemptive, preemptive strikes seem to be the the uh, the favorite weapon of, of the weak and insecure.
1: You know, I, I read something meaningful that you said one time that stuck with me in some kind of interview you did and you said that something. That one was, thing,
2: that one meaningful thing I said. If, when was it? That was frankly, frankly, this 83. entire interview,
1: I remember about three words in it that were very meaningful to me. You know, the rest of it. And like I said, we're going to cut out. <laughs> yeah. No, you, you said something that I really related to in an interview. I can't remember what it was. You said that I was I was interested. I think you were talking about acting and you said something along the lines of I was interested in acting because I was ultimately very curious about how this thing made me feel all these different ways. When I watch a film, when I watch a play, I am moved to laugh, I am moved to cry, I am moved to greatly consider the world. And that you were curious about that, about how one can do that, and that's largely what led you into into acting. So I guess the way I wanted to close things off was, do all those things feel like they come from that same well, like that same well of curiosity and creativity?
2: Yes. I mean, I think... Well, first of all, I think that this, the kids don't do this. They don't separate amongst themselves. They don't separate themselves between, you know, artists and non-artists. That's something that we grow up as adults and do for some reason. And and we shouldn't really, because it's how you listen to something, how you watch a movie, how you, how you look at things as you walk down the street, uh, how you converse with someone, how you view, read a book, anything. That's, that's, Living artistically, you know, it's just to me, art and any of the, you know, things that you spoke about, whether it's music, photography, painting, poetry, directing a movie, Hmm. all these ways of expressing yourself creatively have to do with, in my mind, paying attention to what's happening around you and how you feel about it. In other words, interpreting how you feel about what's happening around you, what you see, what you hear, what you feel. And recording it or expressing it in some way, so it 's taking it in, processing it, and communicating even if it 's just for yourself um, how that makes you feel it 's a way of remembering you know um, it 's a way of uh, it 's a way of going through life really that 's all and and they 're all they 're just different tools for doing as you say, the same thing. I mean, they're all branches of the same tree, which has to do with being present.
1: Did you get any answers as to how art can make us feel? I mean, isn't this the broadest question in the world? But did you get any answers as, as to how art can do what it does to do us?
2: Well, I don't know. I don't know that I have. I mean, I, like I say, I, I, don't, I think all people are artists, uh, whether they want to think of themselves that way or not. Uh, everybody expresses themselves in a different way. Everybody records what's happening around them in different ways. Um, I don't know any other way, so I can't say. I mean, I've always been curious about what's going on, and I've always been conscious ever since I realized when I was very little that our time is finite. You know, this happens to all kids at some point. And my response to realizing that, I, I remember it very clearly, I was very, very little, was not to be afraid of it, but but to get be kind of annoyed about it and to do something about it well i better get busy essentially not that that was consciously what i did but that's essentially my desire to explore pay attention answer questions for myself through different art forms is about that. It really about okay. Make use of the time that we have because all I know is that I'm here now and I'll be gone at some point, not very long from now in terms of the history of the world. So I just want to do it and movies and making a movie as a director. I mean, I, I had produced a few movies before, and I've always, as an actor, been curious and in everybody's business, kind of as much as they would let me asking questions of the director and crew members and actors. And the big difference was that in this case. I mean, I was doing the same thing. I was interested in what everybody was doing and I was also responsible for what everybody was doing, being the director. But the difference was that I was being asked tons of questions rather than asking other people, you know, and that's, that's the job of a director. You, you got to answer those questions and you can't just go home and say, well, I'll think about it. No, you got to answer right now, Mm -hmm. right now. (laughs) You have to, and I think it's best to say, I don't know if you don't know, and then just let's figure it out together. But, uh, that's I love that process. I love directing as difficult as as some aspects of it can be. I I really 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 enjoyed the the collective storytelling aspect of of the process. I I, I I, I can't wait to do it again. I
1: can tell you did. And, you know, speaking of questions there, you know, um, I think if you if you're hearing us talk about this film and you're looking for some kind of answer to all these things we've talked about, the, the, the great thing about the film to me is that it doesn't really give you one. And, and, and in talking to you, it does feel uh, intentional. It's lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time today.
2: You do. Thank you.
1: I really do feel like I could have said, Vigo, why are we all here? And he would have had something like an answer, though. Vigo Mortensen is an actor, painter, poet, writer, photographer, musician, and now a director. His film Falling is his directorial debut. It's screening on Friday at the Toronto International Film Festival. My name is Tom Power. Take a listen to this. The song you're hearing right now is by Mecca Normal, who's a duo out of Vancouver. It's called I Walk Alone. It came out more than 30 years ago. Mecca Normal's music is punk, it's feminist, it's political. And back then, a lot of people said they helped define the sound and the spirit of DIY and the Riot Girl movements of the late 80s and early 90s. The person you're hearing singing is Gene Smith, and that kind of DIY spirit runs through everything she does, because Jean isn't just a musician. She's also a novelist. She's also a painter. And for a long time, like most musicians in this country or a lot of musicians in this country, she worked a series of jobs to pay the bills so that she could create art. But a few years ago, she started doing something new. She'd paint every day and then she'd take her painting and post it on Facebook and sell it for a hundred bucks US. And when people started buying them, she decided to take a little bit of a risk. She quit her job at the garden center to try and live solely off her paintings. More and more people started buying her stuff. And now, for some reason, which we'll get into during the pandemic, her paintings are selling so fast, she can hardly keep up. Meaning if you're trying to get one, you're listening to this going, oh, maybe, maybe I'll pick up a painting. I don't know why you sound like this. Maybe I'll pick up a painting. They sell in under one minute from when they're posted on Facebook. Gene Smith, join me to talk about all of this. How are you?
3: I'm great, thank you.
1: Did you ever imagine this could happen, that your paintings would be selling in under a minute?
3: It really, it it wasn't possible until the internet, and no, how could anyone ever imagine this? I grew up in a world where your, your big dream would be to get in a gallery, and somehow you would be known through whatever magic that they could throw together. But no, nothing like this ever entered my mind.
1: Let's give people an idea of what we're talking about here. Can you pick a painting and describe it to me?
3: Yeah, well, they're on a canvas panel, uh, which makes them durable and easy to ship, and they're faces, uh, portraits, except that they're not really, well, they're not likenesses of anybody in particular. Uh, they're faces of primarily women or people with feminine features, and they're they're really about emotion, so they're not about being a, a pretty woman, although some of them are, or, or what what the person visually looks like. It's really about their face and what it, what it is revealing to me as, as the person there capturing their emotions.
1: And they're nurses as well, right?
3: I've done a lot of uh, series that include women in action roles, we'll say, and that does include nurses, uh, which came along uh, about a year before the, the pandemic started, and have now really taken off in popularity as, as nurses are being regarded as heroes, really. So uh, other ones that I've done in that in that series would be pioneers of aviation and uh, scuba divers and, and various things that show women wearing as much gear as you can put around a, a face, let's say.
1: And, and if I'm not mistaken, most of your buyers are also women.
3: That's true, and... That is a curious and interesting point. So obviously something is resonating there. Having a woman paint women is is very different than women being the subject of a photographer, or the male gaze. So I'm, I'm connecting on a, on a level that's very personal with, within the community of, of Facebook and beyond now. But I think that with my known history as a feminist and as a person who has worked with women's rights through culture as a as a singer in a band such as the song we just we heard a bit of I walk alone it's about a woman's right to walk in the streets of the city wearing whatever she wants so that's been a uh, a strong theme throughout my writing as a as a singer so that that I think is known and there's a trust there that I'm I'm representing women's emotions more than anything sort of superficial.
1: You started out wanting to sell enough paintings just to pay for your living expenses. And now I know you're taking any money you make, any the overhead, and you're putting it towards uh, creating something called the Free Artist Residency for Progressive Social Change. What's that?
3: Well, uh, the two projects seem to be running uh, simultaneously simultaneously. I started thinking about this great idea of buying a place big enough that people could come, people that we know and and artists in general. I was looking at a guest house that was for sale up on Denman Island and thinking, gosh, this would be great to be up here and people could just come and and utilize the space. One one building could be a recording studio, there could be live shows in the cafe, this kind of thing. It's probably not an uncommon dream, but uh, then when I started selling paintings and I really don't, I have a fairly low overhead, and I, I decided that the money that I made above $1,000 U.S., I would just set aside for the artist residency, and I wanted to be clear about what kind of situation it would be by naming it Progressive Social Change, which really would be artists whose work, a project, would intend to change the world in the same way that my band, mechanormal, when we started out, that was part of our agenda, really, was to change the world. My fanzine prior to that was called Smarten Up, a How to Change the World publication. And it's just been a a theme throughout the work we've done. Uh, David Lester and I, my guitar player, we created a classroom event called How Art and Music Can Change the World. And all this this kind of energy came about after uh, a lot of the Riot Girl co-founders cited us as an inspiration uh, to to them getting it together and, and creating a social movement. So now, this is a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, now this I'm, is I'm, a long
1: I'm answer. I'm riveted. Keep going.
3: Okay, so once once we had the evidence that we had in fact changed the world, Tom. Can you imagine? Because mm-hmm. now we're now we're really bombastic. What do you what do you do with yourself once it's been acknowledged that you started a social movement? So we took an event into classrooms where MechaNormal performed songs of a political nature, and that could be anything from housing rights to poverty issues to women's rights. And we talked about how people should get it together and address these types of things in their content as artists, whether it's filmmakers or painters or writers, what have you.
1: Do the people who are buying your paintings know you from mechanormal Normal? Are they fans?
3: Well, it would have all been put together because it's on Facebook. Uh, there would be a lot of people that I've caught up with in one way or another, people we've met on tour, other musicians, just as you would collect up your your friends and associates. Uh, so they were my initial buyers. But then one thing happened that opened the door to another group of art-related fans would be when... Uh, the Jealous Curator uh, put uh, six or so of my paintings on her site, and that was really thrilling. I actually wrote to her and and sort of submitted my paintings and thought, oh, this is a real long shot, and she wrote back right away and said, I love them, I'll put them on the site tomorrow. And she's uh, got a blog, and she writes books and does podcasts, but I was just drawn into the the contemporary art that she Posted in her weekly newsletter, kind of thing. So that that brought a lot of new buyers, and then that connection, I, I kind of went and, and looked for more right. potential people who might be interested, and, and made them friends on Facebook. Right. Which is a little bit crafty, but it's what you what you do when you run a business.
1: Why not charge I mean speaking of business, why not charge more than a hundred bucks us which is only a hundred and thirty bucks Canadian at least as of the time we're recording this? why not charge a little bit more since the demand is is higher?
3: Well, initially it was a pretty impulsive decision. I'm going to paint and put them online for a hundred bucks out of some kind of frustration with the whole job situation but uh, it after after I realized how much gratitude there was from people who wouldn't be able to buy art, good art, and this is good art. Uh, They wouldn't necessarily put themselves in a a group of people or class of people that could collect paintings, which is what has subsequently happened. There could be collections of 10 or 30 or 50, or one person actually owns 250 of them. But uh, uh, once I recognized that it was important to create art for my own community and put it at a price that they could afford. And it's it's a continuation, really, of Fugazi shows being $5 mm. or Beat Happening uh, played pretty much, I think, always all-ages shows. And those those were things to ponder. Why would they do that? Why wouldn't they put their prices up? Why wouldn't they want a bigger audience and play for other people? Well, those are political decisions to to create art for an accessibility aspect. And often people say, oh, you, you should double the price. And I think, well, the paintings are, are actually worth a lot more than $200, so I wouldn't be doing that. But it's something that uh, it, it energizes the whole project. I, I get to paint every day. Sometimes I do three or four a day, and I love putting them up on Facebook and having either a reaction – or people are waiting for a certain an astronaut or whatever it is. They've and I kind of keep that in mind a little bit. What people want, which is fine. Mm-hmm. It's it's got a real performative aspect to it, like doing a show where you definitely, as a as a performer, get a lot out of the audience reaction, uh, whether they're smiling or whether they're they're nodding or they're giving you feedback that is then fuel. And in the same way, this is very similar, and it's entirely new since the Internet and and working out this this Facebook situation. And there's really a community now of people that uh, are, are just very gracious, and some of them are really buying them to specifically support the artist residency.
1: Well, right. I mean, that makes me think about when you say that there's the the performing side of this, which I can obviously relate to, Mm -hmm. and then there's the... But there's also the performing side, the performance, I should say, side of the audience as well. Um, Specifically, you've sold so many paintings during this pandemic. You had a record number of sales in July. You sold 91. Why do you think you're selling so many during the pandemic?
3: Well, I think it was a good a good place to put attention, and, and it became something that you're, you can order online, and we're not going anywhere, especially in the beginning, and something you can put in the environment you're in. So those are, those are some of the specific variables, but I, I think, too, that it's become a, a, a good thing. It's a good story. People are happy that that it's working for me, that I'm a success at, at this, and in such dark times, to grab onto something that's powerful and it has a a purpose, that the, there is a an end point of getting a place that's substantially viable <laughs> to to create a real artist residency.
1: Well, listen, I, I can't begin to thank you enough for taking the time today. In particular, I was really, you know, I think some of the uh, most formative art I experienced when I was a kid were when bands would come to St. John's and play all ages shows, and it didn't make any sense as to why they were doing that. But I'm, I'm so grateful that they were because it gave me an opportunity to hear some of the things I would never have heard. And I feel the same way about the accessibility you're giving to your art. So, I mean, best of luck with it, and thanks so much for your time today.
3: Thank you. Have a great day. They met at a party given by mutual friends, people named Fortune. She always liked that part of the story. They were both painters who loved nothing more than to pack up their watercolor gear and hike into the local mountains to paint landscapes.
1: From 2014, that's mechanormal Normal and Art was the great leveler. If you missed my conversation with Jean Smith, you can find it at cbc.ca Q. But more likely, if you want to catch uh, one of Jean's paintings, even you want to see if you can grab one on under a minute before they sell right away, you can look her up on Facebook. We'll post a link to her blog on our Twitter page. We're at CBC Radio Q. Sound
0: Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: John Power, you're listening to Q. All right, before we get to the news, here's our news. If you caught Vigo Mortensen earlier in the show, you'll know that the Toronto International Film Festival kicks off today. And you might have heard this detail. In-theater screenings are an option this year. Real people sitting in real theaters near-ish each other. But yet, just yesterday, the festival had to reverse a decision that had some folks up in arms. Uh, Not just movie critics, health critics as well. Originally, masks would be optional during these screenings, but this has changed. Masks are mandatory. So if you live in Toronto and you're planning to go see a movie at TIFF, pack your mask and don't plan on getting popcorn. The festival opens tonight with David Byrne's theatrical concert film, American Utopia, directed by Spike Lee. Uh it on. That is cool in the gang with their 1973 hit jungle boogie. Last night some sad news. Ronald Kalis Bell has died at the age of 68, co-founder of Cool in the Gang, also co-wrote this song and a lot of uh, the other band's hits like Celebration. But I will say, if you're interested in Cool in the Gang, uh, uh, Questlove from The Roots has done an amazing job. At uh, talking a little bit about the history of Cool and the Gang, I'll try to track down the video and the DJ said he did where he talked about the long history of Cool and the Gang. Uh, Ronald Bell and his brother and co-founder Robert Cool Bell taught themselves music when they were kids in Ohio using paint cans as percussion. Ronald Bell became a groundbreaking figure, mainly singing and playing saxophone for Cool and the Gang, creating a signature sound in the '70s using horns, bass, and synthesizer. Ronald Calise Bell died yesterday. He was 68. And this news uh, just came in like a couple of minutes ago there. The British actor Dame Diana Rigg has died at the age of 82. She's someone TV viewers of many generations will know. In the 60s, she was best known as the sexy and resourceful spy Emma Peel. More recently, she's someone you might have seen on Game of Thrones. She played Lady Olenna in Game of Thrones and another very resourceful character. Dame Diana Rigg was 82. (laughs) My name is Tom Power. This week, the author Emma Donahue landed on the long list for this year's Scotiabank Giller Prize, the annual award for Best Canadian Fiction. It's a huge honor, and she's nominated for her latest book, The Pull of the Stars. Let me know as I describe this book whether this sounds familiar to you at all. The novel is set in a hospital during a pandemic where they're under-resourced, and understaffed. Masks are encouraged, but some people are skeptical. Any of this ringing a bell for you? How about every bell on earth in deafening volume? Believe it or not, The Pull of the Stars isn't about COVID-19. It's about the 1918 Spanish flu, and it's set at an Irish hospital. But obviously, it's hugely relevant to where we are today. I got to speak to Emma Donoghue back in July when this book came out. Here's part of our conversation. Hi, Emma. Hi, Tom. Before we get going, should I be getting lottery numbers off you or anything?
4: <laughs> I, I have no, I have no luck in that respect. No you know, I, I think people are just noticing the link because um you know, COVID happened. Um, I, I think probably somebody's written a pandemic novel every year or two um, for the last hundred years. I, I'm not the first to realize that a, a randomly invisibly spreading disease would make good narrative um fuel, you know. So no, I had no foreknowledge at all. And the funny thing is, um, I wrote the novel in 2018 and 2019 and, and delivered the last draft this March. And then when, um, when COVID happened, only then did I notice any kind of echo. And when I was doing the copy editing process, I didn't stick in anything from today. I didn't change anything except one thing, where in the novel I had said epidemic, thinking, oh, that's a more you know familiar word. Pandemic sounds too exotic as medical jargon. But um, I did change a few of the epidemics to pandemics because it has so quickly become a totally familiar word.
1: How did you feel then when you found out that it would be released during a real pandemic?
4: I felt uh, spooked, um, a little bit freaked out because, you know, at at a time of international crisis and so much real suffering, it seemed a bit weird to be, you know, um, promoting anything. But um, I I did feel that if we waited till the novel was meant to be published, which was next spring, people would be completely sick of pandemic stories by then. So it does make sense. And, you know, I'm loving the chance to pay tribute to healthcare workers with this novel. This novel is all about how grueling um, work uh, somehow brings out that amazing um, team spirit and energy and commitment in healthcare workers from, you know, from the surgeons right down to the hospital cleaners and orderlies. So so I am quite glad to have a chance to do that.
1: Well, let's talk about that in a second. But first, you know, the book follows a nurse in the maternity ward of a hospital in Dublin during the Spanish flu. What was it about this time, about this place, about this character that, that drew you in?
4: I could have said the book anywhere. What fascinated me was the pandemic itself, because um, the the so-called Spanish flu, which it was just named that by the propaganda of other nations who didn't want it to sound like it was their flu. In fact, it seems to be a flu from Kansas. Um, it, it it hit young adults. I mean, I mean, t- people in their twenties and thirties. It hit people in their prime. Um, you know the, the workers and parents on whom everything depended. So it was an exceptionally horrible. Illness, But also it was said in it happened in in modern times. So I felt that a novel about the great flu could potentially have an almost post-apocalyptic feel. It It would be about a modern, electrified, busy, mechanized society suddenly grinding to a halt because of the terror of random death.
1: You, you asked um, real healthcare workers to edit this book. And uh, you mentioned that this book is in so many ways about the bravery, about the courage, and about the necessity of folks who work in in healthcare. What can you tell me about getting them to look over this book? Why was that important to you?
4: Well, it's funny. I always try and be realistic, but above all, with medical matters, I want to be realistic. Um, and particularly because of COVID, it's, it's it seems like it would be disrespectful not to be absolutely bang on about... Um, not just the details of medical treatments and procedures, but the psychology of medics. So I, I found a midwife to to read the book for me, who was in quarantine, and I already had a copy editor at Little Brown in New York who is an emergency room physician, would you believe? And I had the benefit of her work on, on my novel, The Wonder, as well, which is full of medical details about a starving girl. So um, there's nothing like having a real doctor say, Emma, you've got your details about blood pressure, just a little bit backwards, you know, because... You know, no matter how much research I do, there are things I'm going to get wrong because I think those are the easy ones. I thought I understood the blood pressure bit, but no, but no. So many a blooper she saved me from. And she and the midwife both were, were wonderfully, um, they responded very strongly to bits in the novel where medical workers are just so worn out that they, there's a moment when my protagonist, Nurse Julia Powers, she almost steps in a pothole and she thinks, oh, if I broke my leg, I'd get some time off. Mm. You know, they just, they cannot let themselves off the hook.
1: I wonder if what a virus says about our society, what a virus says about our politics, is the reason you and so many authors have, have written about viral outbreaks. I mean, you look at like even frog music. There was smallpox in that, your 2014 novel. I mean, what, is that what um, gets you interested in looking at viral outbreaks? Because it's a, it's a way of analyzing society?
4: Yeah, they are poli- they are political and they are ethical as well, because... Suddenly, it's not just healthcare workers who have to decide, will I walk into that room where, you know, a patient is going to literally cough bodily fluids all over me? Um, But also ordinary people not in a hospital are looking at each other funny thinking, is there a risk to a hug? Will I do this person more of a kindness by not visiting them than by visiting them? And, you know, we've had very painful discussions about things like long term care homes and the the relative cruelty of isolation as opposed to um, contagion. So um, basically, pandemics uh, turn everyday life into a series of ethical dilemmas, and I, it's hard to think of a time um, when there's been quite as much soul searching about our human relationships and our our social arrangements.
1: You know, earlier you said the word contagion, and it made me think about just the the appetite for pandemic ish literature or pandemic-ish fiction during this time. You know, you look at that film Contagion that, you know, became the number one film streamed on Netflix and, you know, you look at the anticipation and the, and the eagerness for your book right now. Why do you think readers, I mean, given that we're um, surrounded by the stress of this outbreak, by the stress of this pandemic, are seeking out stories about these moments?
4: Well, I know myself when I've had fears it's very comforting to me in my writing to address these head on you know the you know what if I had to risk my child's life to save them that turned into room for instance, so I think um sometimes looking directly at what terrifies you. Is more comforting than just looking away from it. So in, in in bad times, you get, for instance, in the Great Depression in the 1930s, you get um pure escapist fluff and dance routines, but then you get a lot of sort of gritty Steinbeckian literature as well. So um, I know that when they, when the when COVID broke out, um, I was plunging into Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light, which is set in a very, you know, permanently plague-written um 16th century London. So um I think there's a there's an odd kind of consolation to realizing that the human race has been through horrors like this and worse. And in fact, in many ways today, we are far better equipped. Um, information, good information, can spread just as fast as bad. And um, science is in a much better state, and medicine is in a much better state. In 1919, they were just working in the dark. They didn't even know what a virus was, so they were you know literally peering through microscopes trying to find the bacterium responsible and couldn't find it. So um, they were blundering along, and um, it was an absolute horror of a time. It's been estimated to have killed um, between 3 and 6% of the human race. So, you know, it has really taken the edge off my COVID fear mm. to focus on 1918.
1: Emma Donahue's latest book is called The Pull of the Stars, and this week it made the long list for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. That's the annual award for Best Canadian Fiction. The short list gets revealed next month, and then the winner is announced on November 9th. All right, so let's talk crime movies. What are the best ones that pop into your head? Scarface? good fellows, Airbud 2 Golden Receiver. The crime there was how little everyone believed in that wonderful dog. There's a new film premiering at this year's Toronto International Film Festival that's called Akilah's Escape. And on the surface, it's a movie about drug crimes in Toronto in New York. But if you sit down and watch it, it only takes a few minutes to realize it's about much more than that. The director of the film, Charles Officer, avoids the over sensationalism that a lot of crime movies are guilty of. And the film is a, a blunt look at gang culture and the reach of its international drug trade and what makes this film so captivating uh, often is I mean there's a lot of things that make it uh, captivating but one thing is how it depicts the toll that violence takes on black lives in Toronto and in New York there's no gloss or glamour it's it's quite real Charles Officer co-wrote the film with the playwright and poet Motion they're both great friends of the show and I'm I'm so happy to say they both join me now welcome to the show how are you well, we're going to find out in a second once the internet catches up, how everybody is. I think we're having a hard time uh, using the internet here. We're having a hard time hearing people. Anyone hear me yet? I can hear you now. Charles, there you are. How are you? Congratulations. Yeah. Motion, unfortunately, we're out of time for the interview. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Um, Motion, <laughs> congratulations on the film. Uh, what does it mean to have uh, Achilles escape this film premiere at TIFF?
5: Oh, it means so much. It's first of all just getting the film in the can, getting it wrapped, doing all everybody coming together to do the work, and then to have it manifest in Toronto, in our city, at TIFF, um, to be on the screen for the first time, especially in these times, and having a like having a chance to have a public Mm -hmm. event. Uh, those so socially distancing being here in the city is really important and and a great start for the film
1: i 'm happy about that too Charles. Uh, tell me a little bit about what inspired this story it was something to do with the drug deal gone wrong right
6: yeah it 's something around that, but it, you know i'm i 'm a fan of you know genre and, and crime noir and and want to put our 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 people in that story, but at the core of it i 'm really looking at um um uh, the idea of, of generational trauma and how that is cycled through um, uh, black boys, their fathers. It's, this is a father-son story. This is an origin and a reckoning story that is told through this one character who is who's had a past, who grew up in a certain way, and then now faces you know a situation after this this heist gone wrong. What when he captures this young boy, what he's going to do with him? So so I'm really really talking about you know our role as men um the experience that we we accumulate and really looking at the you know with the, the essential question I was asking was you know what is the cost for black boys to escape this this uh, cycle of generational trauma and why does it ha- why does it cost so much all the time
1: motion what made you want to get involved in this film
5: well I guess a big thing is having the chance to once again work with Charles, um, Charles Officer, um, as an um, just amazing creative, and and I love collaborating with him. Um, also, to tell a Toronto story, to tell a story that is is both our story, um, it's a global story because it takes place or is based here in Toronto, but it also looks at the at the experience of black people black young men black families not only here in the city but in new york and jamaica which is basically connecting to the diaspora in general the that's the ways that that systems as w- affect also families affect personal affect our, our own emotional growth and and trauma and and healing and so, everything about the themes what was very important for me to be a part of, so i 'm really happy that i was I was bought into to um, work on this as well invited i should say to work it's a, it's on a this as well it 's a really
1: beautiful film um, i, I don 't want to spoil too much, but I think we should we should talk a little bit about it and about the characters so charles let 's start with the main character uh, Akila. the Sort of stoic heart of the story is played by Saul Williams, American actor, rapper, and poet. Tell me a little bit about aquila
6: Aquila is, um, you know, we meet him, uh, you know, throughout the film um, as a boy and a man, and um, and you know, while he was a boy, he was he was he was groomed into this world of um, a criminal organization that has his father and his grandfather has, has lineage to that traces back to Jamaica. Um, and uh, But when we meet Akilah as a man, he's now operating, you know, um, a grow up in our now legalized system in Canada. And um, and he was once clandestine and doing it one way. But now with this political sort of turnover, he's facing a, sel- a question of self-governance and where he, he lies in that. So he's choosing to actually say peace out to this world. Um, and make that sort of shift, but you know, another you know crime genre films, you see someone trying to get out to do right for other reasons, but he's getting out because of the he understands the political factions and the and and he sees the way things are, are structured in a different way. So he's he's a, he's a he's a person who's basically been seen a lot and has experienced a lot and actually understands the idea of what violence can do, but um, but chooses chooses he, he chooses not to use it but he knows how if he has to
1: i don't want to give away too much so i'm, I'm cautious about asking this next question so motion uh, only say as much as you feel like you want to reveal without uh, letting too much uh, out there but let's talk about uh a shepherd in the film played by tamela impum um one of the things we talked about at the beginning and charles and i talked about just then is about generational violence tell me a little bit about shepherd's role in this uh, in this
5: film well in many ways shepherds represents the now and the past he represents what we often look at as why can't you know youth just do this and not realizing the how deep these um situations go that is not as easy as you know throwing you know police and and law enforcement and law and order at human beings that 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 not only are youth and and families and people caught up in systems and and being controlled by systems that have a hand in their own uh, destruction but also that there is an inner a inner healing that needs to take place that the emotions the 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 trauma the PTSD that that people go through when violence comes close to home and so Tamella uh, aka um <laughs> Shepherd she embodies that in such a a deep way with very little words and more about what he exposes through his own, um, his own experience, his own want for escape, but not knowing how. And this is very representative of, of a lot of things that we're seeing right now I, as a community and as communities.
1: I don't want to go too much off topic here, but I couldn't help but notice that you cast Saul Williams to play a uh, Aquila is. I mean, Saul Williams is a is a musician. He's a he's a rapper. Like, was was that intentional, Charles, in bringing someone with a musical background into this film?
6: Absolutely. I've known Saul for a very long time. I mean, and and I've quietly been you know been thinking about him playing this role. I I really respect him as an actor, but he's never you know really um, held the lead in a film since Slam. And and you know the idea of who he is as a human being, and he also has a son that's similar age as you know Shepard Tamela, mm-hmm. um, and and I just felt like there was something about him as the man playing this role, his poetry, his understanding. This guy understands hip hop beyond other pe- people. Like he is, he understands jazz. He's he has the the diaspora within his bones, and and so. And it was beautiful because you know when our producer, um, um, co-producer Jake Janowski, when we were trying to cast pr- the character of Prince, he's like, "What about Vic Mensa?" And I'm like, "Vic Mensa, I would love him." And I'm like again another
1: uh, another rapper, like so many musicians in this film.
6: Yeah, I, I really think that they're incredibly talented. We've seen it numerous times, but um, it turns out that that Saul Williams is Vic's me- mentor. So when we sent the script to, and, 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 and Jake grew up with Vic, because Jake is from originally from Chicago. So that synergy of that kind of like, so he has been groomed by this kind of man. So this is kind of the kind of artist that he is in his soul. And this is the kind of environment we wanted around our film. All this to actually give young Tamela, who is this amazing Canadian generational talent, the, the, the network that he needs as he moves forward as an artist mm. that he can now reach out to Saul and reach out to Vic. And and that expands our our, our community beyond Canada because our community is beyond Canada. And uh, and I think I would love our films to, to reflect that and our storytelling, yeah.
1: there, was, there, there is, It's such a, a poetic film in so many ways. And Motion, I thought of you a couple of times while I was watching it because I was wondering if you brought that. I mean, you're a, a great poet and a great musician yourself. Like, did that... Um, influence the way you helped write this, this film?
5: I believe poetry is part of how we speak and how we talk and how we move the poetry of the, of the visuals, as well as the poetry of thinking about the voice of a killer, right? Of his voice and how he is the things he says and the things that he doesn't say. So I feel definitely that, being a poet, being a, a MC, and thinking about the musicality of the voices and the musicality of their even their movements was part of what was interesting to me. You know, and it, it very much, very very much. If it just turns again, what
6: I love about motion. That's why I wanted. I really loved. I love Motion's work um, from the theater and her poetry. And I was, used to listen to Motion on the radio when I was at OCAT. Like, you know what I mean? Before I met her. So there was, there was this flow of her voice and the way and her language. And, and that poetry was important for me, I think, in a film that is dealing with violence, crime, especially dealing with black people. Right. You know, and we wrote this, this, this film was, was, you know, was done before this whole crazy time right now as Mm -hmm. well. So, so we, we, that's, you know, motion is poetry.
1: (laughs) It's it's done before it is, it is, um, How do I put this? It is both uh, very, very sad um, and very, very true that even though you wrote this film before this particular moment, that it is uh, still incredibly relevant to this moment.
6: Mm -hmm. It is. And, you know, this trauma that we're seeing and this idea of and and it also influenced the way that, you know, we're capturing and presenting. We're very conscious. We've talked a lot about that with between DP, Maya Bankovic, who's who's, you know, her female eye needed to be on this as well like you know the lens of violence through women's eyes is is different than men and that translates also so it's a combination of all this where we are in this time right now where we've seen you know like our social acceptance of violence and these images that we can see black bodies being abused over and over and over and it takes this extreme sensibility to see that wow you know really look at what we're dealing with in this community on that um, from a very young age is that this trauma has been perpetuated and, and imposed upon and there's a real political force behind all of this you know and to really recognize that to identify it so you can and you know we're getting calls to defund the police which is you know a form of of, of that was initiated out of slave patrolling you know what i mean like so this these these elements are, are are all weaved into our society that is also again like we're seeing bill blair who's now you know who's Taking over this this mantle around legalization, but you know how many people has he been you know um, touched in terms of contributing, incarcerating, and, and and changing the course of their lives? You know, um, and we're talking about a healing plant. You know, uh, that, you know, so let's go to the origins of things and really kind of look at the way that our society is, is, is affecting us as black people is really critical.
1: Um, but before we go, I want to make sure I get to this, that the film is slated to be part of planet Africa. And in some ways it isn't inspired by planet Africa, which is part of TIFF that showcases films from Africa and the African uh, diaspora. Charles, tell me a little bit about planet Africa and what it meant for you as a filmmaker.
6: Yeah, I, I would say like, you know, it's crazy. 20 years ago, to this day, I went to my first film festival with my first short film in 2000. Um, and in that festival, at that festival, I was also, you know, you're given a pass. And, you know, I was in a film, Virgo Virgo's film, Love Come Down. So I had this place where I was open to this Planet Africa program. And and I got to look through the, the this catalog, and, and it really opened me up to the breadth of films that actually exist that I'd never been exposed to, that speaks to my culture, my lineage, like so much more, you know, um, I, 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 I so it feels very, again, poetic uh. in a certain way to come back in 2020 in this time, um, because at that time, like, you know, that, that there's a, that It also reflects this idea of where where there was a program that was created to really um, curate specific types of films. And that program was necessary. Right. Then it disappeared. And these things keep disappearing because we're like, we need to be we need to be integrated. Um, and now it's coming back for the celebration where I think is very, very important. And maybe I hope that that it, it just kind of doesn't stay for this year.
1: It is that it's, a, it's beautiful to hear you talk about it. Motion, We got about 30 seconds left before we, 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 we get kicked off the air here. But I, I do want to give you the last word here. Um, people leave the theater. People leave the drive in. People go back into the kitchen to get more popcorn. If there's one conversation you hope that two people who watch this film together have with one another on the way in, what do you what do you hope it is?
5: Healing, what we can do to heal and to uprise our communities and understanding and love how we're going to do that through our art, through our creativity, through our through our people to continue to use art to resist. I- There's a lot of things, but that's those are the key and
1: then and and those are the conversations you know those are the conversations i I think you'll be having coming out of this thing i can't say enough about the film Uh, as i said to you before we went on the air i was texting my friends yesterday saying i won't say what i actually said but i I said i can't believe how good this is (laughs) you know like i can't believe i just i love every single moment of this film um and uh as two sort of friends of q um congratulations on it and and take care of yourselves and, and congratulations again
5: thank you Time
1: that means
6: a lot to us. Thank you.
1: Charles Officer is the director of Achilles' Escape. He wrote the film with playwright and poet. Motion. It premieres on Saturday. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Lucy Liu, who you might know from Charlie's Angels and Ally McBeal, she's in a new television show called Why Women Kill, and she has the very challenging job of taking someone who's ultra wealthy and likes to murder people and make them sympathetic. We're going to talk about how she does it. See you then. Later on.